Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Brad, and I'm one of the pastors here. Before we get into the preaching of God's Word, I want to lead us in a pastoral prayer. And in the pastoral prayer today, I want to address something that is heavy on my heart, the heart of the the pastors. And if you're aware of it, I hope your hearts as well. A couple weeks ago, there was an investigation, the report of an investigation that was released in regard to the Southern Baptist Convention. Last year, the Southern Baptist Convention's messengers voted to have an independent investigation as a response to sexual abuse allegations and possible cover-ups within the convention and the churches that it represents. The uh, results of that report were devastating um, and probably only the surface of what has happened across churches in our country. Now, we could reason in this, like, why would we talk about it publicly as a church? It's like, isn't that exactly what got us in this place, (laughs) is not talking about these things? And so we want to talk about it. We want to bring what is in the darkness into the light. And so we believe that this is not a time for factions and politicking and fighting over power or business as usual within our denomination. As pastors, we believe it is time for nothing but sackcloth and ashes and dealing with what has come to light. The Apostle John records this in the book of Revelation. Jesus is walking among seven lampstands. Those lampstands represent churches of that day. Jesus' eyes were like fire and his face was like the shining sun. And Jesus' judgment of those churches cut through all the deceptions and falsehoods. And when Jesus came to the church at Ephesus, he found that they had lost their way, that they had forsaken their first love. And so as we think about these things that have taken place, we want to pray. We want to pray specifically for the annual meeting of the SVC that is happening this week. And we want to pray for our church, that regardless of what happens in the wider context of denominations and churches out there, we will respond with what we need to respond with right here. Amen? So I want you to gather with me in prayer this morning. And before I pray, I just want to say this. As pastors, we want to establish a sexual abuse prevention and response training for our entire church, not just for Antioch kids, but for everyone. And so, as part of this, we would like to invite some of you who are passionate and perhaps more experienced than we are in regard to this kind of thing to be on a team of sorts to help us as pastors to choose what training would be best and implement it effectively in our church. So if you're interested in that, please see one of the pastors after today's gathering. All right, church, let's pray. Father, in light of all the harm that has taken place in churches across the country, we sit in sackcloth and ashes and grieve. Lord, have mercy. So many have been hurt. And when they have 
made their voice known with great courage. They have gone unheard and often ignored, suppressed, ridiculed. Father, what is wrong? This is sin. This is not of you. And so, Father, as we consider these things, we think of how Jesus is walking among lampstands, among churches, and he desires to not snuff out their light. And so, Father, let us as a church and let all the churches across this denomination respond to you pleading for mercy and asking that you would not snuff out our lampstand, but that you would help us to repent and to address these things and to be restored. That churches would be safe places for everyone and especially the vulnerable, especially children that they would not be places where people could easily come in and take advantage. Father, we pray specifically for the annual meeting this week. We ask that there would be an overwhelming sense of not fighting over power or argumentation, but there would be a sense of sackcloth and ashes and a deep grief that leads to action in obedience to you. We pray for Todd Robertson as he represents Antioch Church as a messenger at the annual meeting, that you would give him wisdom and strength and courage. And Lord, we pray that here at Antioch Church that you would help us to respond properly to these things, that you would help us as we mobilize a team that will implement sexual abuse prevention and response training, and that this would be a a place where, Lord, this kind of abuse would never happen. It would be a safe place, especially for the most vulnerable in our midst. Thank you for hearing our prayers, Lord. May you be glorified as we bring what is in the darkness into light, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, before we dismiss Antioch kids to go to their classes... Um, since we're kind of already talking about children, and because today's sermon is about God's discipline, which always sounds very negative, but is actually a very positive thing, I want to remind us of something that we said a few months back that occasionally we just need to remember as a family. One of the things that we're seeing in our culture right now is the neglect to give children good guidance really even giving them misguidance, things that are contrary to God's good design and their very nature. And so we as a church don't want to let our children just like run wild and crazy. We want to give them good guidance. And so as part of that, when we're in the Sunday gathering, that Sunday gathering is for our children too. They need intentional gospel relationships. They need to develop friendships in a space that they enjoy where they can go, you know what, I love getting to know Jesus and follow him with other people who are learning to do that too. But in order for that to work as a family, we need to set a little bit of guidance and ground rules. And so three things that I want to put before you, and this is in particular for those of you like me who have parents of little ones. First, and I'm putting these in a positive rather than just in a negative, walk instead of run. Okay? 
It's a small space that we have and a growing number of people. We have a growing number of elderly members and we have a growing number of little babies. Imagine running into one of those kinds of members and knocking them down. It would not be a good situation. So walk instead of run. Second, talk instead of scream. All right? We want you to talk. We want you to enjoy. But please don't let your children scream. And then third, enjoy the facility, but not the stage or the rooms. Okay? Kiddos don't need to be on the stage. They can enjoy the stage. They can point at it and talk about it, but they don't need to be up here on it, around the instruments and the electrical wires and all that. They also don't need to be disappearing into rooms because all it takes is five minutes in a private room with a closed door for something to happen. Okay, parents? And I know that's hard for us because this is our time to talk with each other and enjoy But we may have to sacrifice a little bit in order to watch our kiddos and keep this a safe place for them and for everyone else. All right. Well, with that said, Antioch kids, you may be dismissed to go to your classes at this time. Teachers, we say to you, you are sent. Young disciples, there are guides for the sermon right over here on the table to my right. uh, Your left, if you haven't already grabbed one of those, go ahead and grab one of those now. All right. Well, today we're going to continue in our sermon series in Genesis chapters 37 to 50, which we've titled, Worst Thing, Best Thing. And so this morning I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 42, verses 1 through 38. Young disciples, there's the first thing you need for your sermon guide. Today's passage, Genesis 42, verses 1 through 38. You can find that on page 35 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. The title of today's sermon is Grace and Truth. How from the story of Joseph, God's loving discipline of grace and truth conforms us to the image of Christ. My outline for today's message is taken from the explanation of God's discipline in Hebrews chapter 12. First, the Lord disciplines those he loves. Young disciples, if you want to capture the main idea of today's sermon, I think this is a good way to do it. The Lord disciplines those he loves. Second, it seems painful rather than pleasant. And third, it yields fruit to those who are trained by it. Well, since today's passage is so long, rather than asking you to stand and us read it all at once, I'm going to be reading it verse by verse as we go along this morning. But let us posture our hearts now in such a way that we can say in regard to God's word, the Lord has spoken to us, and respond with, Amen. Now some of you may know that I have an older sister, and she was an amazing athlete. And so one of the things that she got into at one point was gymnastics. So me and my mom were going to pick up my sister from gymnastics one day, and I uttered these famous last words. Anybody can do that. Yeah. So my mom, who loved me, said, Oh, really? Well, let's find out. Next practice, we're signing you up for gymnastics. All right. See how this works out. I went into gymnastics practice, 
And I don't have a lot of memory of it because I think all the trauma has caused me to block it out, right? But here's the memory I do have. Being the only boy in a gymnasium full of girls who could not do a proper cartwheel or handstand. And that entire gymnasium of girls laughing at me, okay? Needless to say, I walked away from that practice no longer believing that anybody can do that, right? And so you see in my immaturity, my hard and blind heart needed to be broken open. I needed a deep inner transformation that allowed me to bless others instead of belittle them. And over the past five weeks, we have seen how God has worked that deep inner transformation in a man named Joseph. He has gone from this immature, naive kid to a wise ruler who blesses the nations. But y'all, that didn't happen overnight, did it? It took 14 years of grace and truth, highs and lows, successes and failures, healing and wounds to break Joseph open to who God made him to be. And so what we have been observing here is the process of the Lord's discipline. The Bible gives a definition for discipline in Hebrews chapter 12. Says this, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So eight times in this passage, the author uses the Greek word for discipline, paideia. And this does not mean punishment or payback. It literally means training or instruction. And Paul uses it in other places to describe godly parenting and discipleship. It's this tough and tender nurturing of a child so that they grow up and flourish. Not out of control because the parents refused to give them consequences, and not crushed because the parents gave them nothing but consequences. It's this rich balance of grace and truth that's so hard for us to get just right. If you're a parent in the room, you know what it's like to not slam your kid in angry discipline, which is really more like punishment, but to come to them and to give them good 
tough guidance and consequences and then hold them and comfort them as they face and walk through those consequences. That's so hard, isn't it? It's hard to get that balance right. And yet God in his discipline always gets it perfectly right. And so Joseph can look at his life and say, not, man, God was out to get me. But instead, man, God used these situations to show me how much he loved me and had a glorious dream for me. Listen, this is weird, but I say this often pastorally to those of you who are in that stage of life where you're just like going through one thing after another. You know what I'm saying? One thing right after another. Really all at once, Lord? What in the world did I do to make you mad at me? And I'm like, listen, I don't think he's mad at you. I think he's showing you how much he loves you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves. He uses the painful circumstances of life to grow us up and cause us to flourish. And y'all, this is wonderful for Joseph, right? But this is not the case for Joseph's family yet. Before chapter 42, the original readers of Genesis might have thought that God had given up on the family altogether and was just leaning into Joseph. But today, we're going to see that God is going after them too. And thanks be to God, he disciplines those he loves. So this is our starting point for embracing God's discipline today. We read in verse 1, When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why y'all looking at each other? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So 14 years, Joseph has been submitting himself to God's discipline and starting to taste what the writer of Hebrews called the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Meanwhile, for 14 years, his family has been living in denial of God's discipline, running from the consequences of their sins and wounds. We'll give this example, as I know that many of you are involved in jujitsu. All right? So imagine having been in jiu-jitsu for 14 years. All right? I'm not familiar with the belts, but it's got some black on it. <laughs> and then a guy who watch, watches a Jackie Chan movie decides he's going to roll up in there and go ninja on y'all. He walks in to that room where the mats are, What's going to happen when he goes against the guy who's been at this for 14 years, right? This is the difference you see between Joseph and his family, okay? But God's not going to let them stay there, all right? And so we can zoom in on the brothers for their evil, but remember this. Jacob, the father, was actually the one who started all this mess when he started by playing favorites with his wife, Rachel, and his son, Joseph. Like, that's what broke the family to pieces and caused the brothers to be so jealous. And here, in his harsh words to his sons, you get a glimpse of the ongoing impact of his sins and wounds, his resistance to God's discipline. And so I say this to you today as a mini-application. Like Jacob, 
whatever you won't deal with that is unresolved from your past, others will have to. And often, especially, the people that you love most. All right? So God's invitation for you today and always is to deal with those unresolved sins and wounds from the past, that they may be healed, that others may be blessed. Jacob here may have learned to limp. Y'all remember that last summer? Got his hip put out of place. He may have learned to limp, but God's breaking of him did not end on this side of heaven. And that is because God loved him so much. Verse 3. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Young disciples, here's what you need for your sermon guide. This is why the brothers went to Egypt, because of famine. So look at this. Jacob, he's still doing it. He says, you can't take Benjamin. Why? Because Benjamin is his other son of Rachel. And so you know what that immediately brings up for these brothers? Not just the same old favoritism, it also brings up the past. And this, this is the we don't talk about Bruno taboo topic of this family, (laughs) right? And Jacob just threw it out in the open again. And so without even saying Joseph's name, what immediately jolts into the minds of the brothers? Bad memories. And with it, guilt. You see, we are experts in putting our sins behind us, aren't we? Like We do things like we get really, really busy, so we're not thinking about what's back there. Or we do really, really good things. We get maybe even deeply involved in the church and leadership, so we're not thinking about what's back there. Or we do so many good things that we can look down on others and say, you know what, I'm not as bad as them. I don't have to deal with my stuff. But none of that forgives sin or heals wounds. And so, thanks be to God, he's using circumstances to bring up what is unresolved from the path. Why? For punishment? Payback? No, for training. It's his tough and tender nurturing so that they finally grow up and flourish in order to bless the nation. See, God's God's breaking of us does not end because his love for his children does not end. The Lord disciplines those he loves. It's our first point. But, and this is something that we have learned to say to our children sometimes, you do have to submit to discipline respectfully, but you don't have to like it. All right? Sometimes parents will literally say to their children, you will do this and you will like it. Right? God doesn't say that. He doesn't say that in his word. In Hebrews 12, he encourages us to remember its purpose and to endure its pain, to respect him for his discipline. But it does not say that we are to like it. There's some freedom in that, y'all. In fact, he admits, and this is our second point for embracing God's discipline today, It seems painful rather than pleasant. 
So look at how this plays out in the lives of Joseph's brothers. This is verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. And Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to seek. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, this youngest is the day is the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. So notice that because of God's deep inner transformation in Joseph's life, he can recognize them because they ain't changed a bit. But they can't recognize him because by God's grace, he's changed so much. And this, combined with his authority, provides the perfect opportunity to examine them fully. The text used the words test. Now, this is not toying with them. It appears that way, but it's not. This is God, through Joseph, testing them with his discipline. So, Joseph puts them, think about this, he puts them in many of the same circumstances that they had put him through. Let me explain. He treats them like strangers. Didn't they first treat him more like a stranger than a brother? Joseph speaks to them roughly. Weren't they first the ones who were unable to even speak to him peaceably? Joseph accuses them of being spies. Didn't they first view him as spying on them for his father? Joseph leaves them in prison. Weren't they the ones who first detained him in a pit? And he puts their lives on the line. Didn't they first leave him alone contemplating his death? And listen, I know that this must look like payback. But as we'll see, like it really isn't. If Joseph really wanted payback, y'all, if if Joseph really wanted payback, he could have just said, it's me. Now what's up? You know? And then he could have sold him into slavery. Like that would have been payback. But he wanted something more. And in doing this, God was giving them the opportunity to redeem their corrupted consciences. Okay? Now, we talk about conscience a lot, but we usually don't give it a definition. So let me give it a definition this morning. 
Your conscience is your God-given sensitivity to God's law. Whether you're a believer or not, okay? There's an innate sensitivity to what is right and wrong. And continuing in unrepentant sin ruins your conscience. Then the conscience not only becomes suppressed, doesn't work like it should, but when it does work, it's what the Bible calls evil. In other words, it only condemns you. Let me give you an example. So recently, I brought a brand new leaf blower, and it worked really well for a while until I got the ratio wrong between gas and oil. Anybody else in the room did that? Well, I put it in there, and you know what? It still worked, kind of, but it blew smoke. Like so much smoke that like things might have been moving out of the way, but I couldn't see it because I was in a cloud of smoke, right? It was not working properly, even though it was still kind of working, all right? This is what happens with our conscience when we don't deal with sins. And so let's see what happens in these brothers' consciences. Verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. He returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. So as you can see, like the testing really does begin to work, doesn't it? And when we see the brothers speaking, what comes out? In truth, we are guilty. The inference is, and we need mercy. Furthermore, this is what it must have been like for Joseph when we heard him pleading with us and we did not have mercy. We don't deserve mercy. We didn't give mercy. And you know what that is? That is a conscience that's sputtering back to life. A confession of sin. A realization that even if there is forgiveness, there are still consequences that will have to be dealt with. Reuben says, so now there comes a reckoning for his blood. And we can only imagine what this is like for Joseph to hear this coming from his brothers. Right? Can you imagine? Put yourself in in his shoes for a moment. And these brothers are talking about you like you are a dead man. And these brothers who have done this grievous evil to you, who have been separated from you for 14 years, are not only talking about you like you're a dead man, but are beginning to admit what they did against you. 
Man, I can't even, no wonder he walks away and he weeps. It's this tearing open of old wounds. Life does that, right? You think, I think I worked through that. Woo, man, it rips right back open. But you know why else I think he weeps? Because he still loves his brothers. And he sees in them for the first time a glimmer of change. You see, it seems like Joseph is just after forgiveness because he shows mercy to them here. Remember, it's different when he comes back after three days and he's like, all right, do this and you'll live. It's a different vibe. It's very gracious. If Joseph really wanted forgiveness, he could have just said, guys, throw off whatever. It's me. And hug him. Forgiveness. But Joseph really wanted more than that. What he really wanted was change. Young disciples, this is why Joseph tested his brothers. He wanted change. And this is the point of God's discipline. And so Joseph gives them the opportunity for redemption. By demanding Benjamin, he puts them right back in that original circumstance. So think about this with me. Will they sacrifice a younger brother in order to bless themselves? That's what they got to wrestle with. Will they betray Jacob's beloved son in order to go free themselves? Will they protect the right of the firstborn by destroying a child? That's what they have to wrestle with. And this is pretty much what they're going to wrestle with over the next three chapters of Genesis. Verse 25. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he said he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, My money has been put back, and here it is in the mouth of my sack. And at this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? So here goes the next round of Joseph's testing. In his kindness, he gives them provisions for the journey, but unbeknownst to them, he also puts their money back in their sacks. And so, when they find it, they immediately realize that it appears as though they really are spies who stole grain. And when the brothers here start speaking, what comes out? It's not just, what are we going to do, guys? We need to come up with a scheme to get ourselves out of this. No, no, no. This time it is, what is this that God has done to us? Listen, this is going to be the second time they've come home with money having abandoned a brother in Egypt. Oh, that's touching some conscience. That's bringing up some guilt. And that is a conscience sputtering back to life. But most importantly here, look at how this happened, okay? God's testing of discipline has come through this kind of like weird back and forth from Joseph. Anybody notice that? If you read this part of Joseph's story, there's this like weird back and forth. He's tough and then he's tender and then he's tough and then he's tender. And honestly, when you read it, it kind of just seems like he's unstable, right? 
Like, make up your mind, Joseph, okay? This is going to continue for two chapters. But here's what I think that this is meant to teach us. One scholar describes the mechanics of God's discipline in this way. It's like the alternating sun and frost that eventually breaks things open. You ever notice that about sun and frost? Extreme heat and extreme cold back and forth, the impact that it makes on things. Let me give you three tangible examples. One is, think about a highway. When there is extreme cold and things freeze up and then there's extreme heat, what does it do to a highway? Breaks it open. Man, you get all these cracks and ruts in it, and so you have to constantly fix the highway and pour into it until it's really, really resilient. Or another example that's very relevant to us here in Louisville, Kentucky, bourbon. So bourbon happens when you pour liquor into, I'm going to get this wrong, I know for those of you who are super expert on it, you can correct me later, but when you put liquor into a barrel that's been charred on the inside, what might you get out of it? Well, charred liquor. But the amazing thing, the reason why it's so special in Kentucky, is you take that barrel and you put it into a rickhouse, a big old barn that doesn't have air conditioning or heat, and you let the extreme heat of summer and the extreme cold of winter go to work on that barrel, causing it to flex in and out so that it pours into all these amazing flavors into the bourbon, and you get the finest in the world. Or also, think of a gymnasium. You don't go in a gymnasium and work out and come out feeling really good, like, man, I just like, I'm not sore at all. It's good. It's like, well, if you're doing that, you're not doing it right. You're supposed to go in there, and the way that it works is you lift heavy things or do whatever, and it literally shreds your muscles on the inside. And then you take a day off the next day, and it allows your muscles to build back even stronger. Okay, so that you have this very perfectly toned muscle as it continues its work of alternating back and forth and breaking things open. God trains us with alternating toughness and tenderness, healing and wounds, ups and downs that eventually break open our hard or blind hearts to make us more like Christ. And so it's this rich balance of grace and truth that's so hard for us to get just right. And yet God and his discipline always gets it perfectly right. Thanks be to God. We are seeing this very process in the lives of these brothers. But remember, what we're learning in this section, in order to help you embrace such discipline for yourself, At first, it seems painful rather than pleasant. You don't have to like it. But here's what you can like and love and long for. It yields fruit to those trained by it. When the brothers arrive back home with their consciences sputtering, they then report everything to their father. And that's good, right? You think about last time they came home like this. They hid the truth. They deceived. But here it's all out in the open. But the test continues in verse 35. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, 
You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. And so the bad omen is now multiplied times 10 as all of them find their money. Now, the guilt that they are already feeling is magnified. But y'all, look at Jacob. Instead of the circumstances lifting his attention to God, where does he focus? Yeah. You have bereaved who? Me. All this has come against who? Me. It's all about me. And this is what happens with unresolved wounds in our lives, y'all. You see all of life through them just like glasses. And in every tough turn of God's discipline, you miss out on the fruit because you miss out on the Father. You're saying, woe is me, woe is me. Instead of saying, blessed is me. Look at what God's doing. He's doing something in this. I don't know exactly what it is, but he wants to change me. He wants to heal me. Now, Jacob may not be ready to break open, but look at Reuben, verse 37. Then Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I don't bring him back to you. Put him in my hands. I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Now, let's be honest. It's definitely a little extreme for Reuben to say, kill my two sons. Okay? And that definitely wouldn't help the family dynamic. Right? But you can see in it that something is breaking open his heart right? Instead of being ruled by jealousy, he's willing to take great risk in protecting this innocent young brother and this guilty old father. And yet I I think there's even more here. Remember in the previous chapter how Joseph observed God's presence in the doubling of things? Like He was really paying attention to how things would be doubled and that is an evidence that God was at work. So look at this. Look at how many of Reuben's four sons that he offers up here. How many? Two. See that? That means God's in this. God's discipline is working. The training of truth and grace, sun and frost, tough and tender, is already starting to work in these brothers. A guilty conscience that looks to God in confession and is restored to them and experiences healing, it always leads to movement toward the needs of others rather than simply the desires for self. Yes, at first God's discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but it yields fruit to those who are trained by. You know, as I think back and I laugh at the humiliation I experienced as the world's embarrassment to gymnastics, I'm actually grateful. I'm grateful that my mom loved me enough to discipline me in that way. Like, it definitely seemed painful rather than pleasant in the moment. 
But when I got back into the van after that practice, and I said, I was wrong. I can't do it. Please don't make me go back. My sister's awesome. She's amazing. She did it all. Mom didn't belittle me then or later. I'm sure she got a laugh out of it. But the lesson yielded fruit in my life to this day, right? The sun and frost broke me open to bless others instead of belittle them. And as we come to the end of this sermon, there's only one thing that can actually make any of this yield fruit for you. Without this one thing, the Bible's teaching on God's discipline is completely irrelevant to you. This sermon would be completely, and rightly so, forgettable. And what is this one thing? It is the ultimate sun and frost, the most important truth and grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel, two things here. The gospel says, first of all, that your heart is harder and blinder than you could ever imagine. There is no amount of discipline that could even put a dent in your heart. Here's precisely how you can know the extent to which your heart will not change apart from something great. The only thing that could possibly get your conscience sputtering back to life is nothing less than God himself not just being disciplined for your sins, but dying for your sins. Nothing less. That's how bad off our hearts are. And to acknowledge that is to let the most terrible frost imaginable freeze your heart brittle. If you'll take that to heart today, that your heart is that bad, it will freeze it brittle. There is nothing that anyone in the whole world can say to you that is worse than what God has said of you already. Like you are dead in your sins, separated from God, without hope. Nobody could ever say something meaner or worse about you, but the thing, it's true. And he says it to you because he loves you. That's the first thing. But the second thing, and thanks be to God, this gospel also says that God's heart is more tender than you could ever imagine. Yes, like nothing less than God dying for your sins can begin to get through to you, but that's exactly what he did. The Bible tells us that even while we were still sinners, not sons or daughters, Christ died for us. In Jacob, like, we see a man who says, whoa, I can't sacrifice a son to save others. And in Reuben, we see a man who says, wait, wait, kill my two sons. And we're like, whoa, that's way too extreme, dude. And yet that's how extreme God's love is for you. Sacrificing himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And to acknowledge that is to let the most wonderful son imaginable melt your heart mush. Go back and forth between those truths. Whether you are here today and you've been following Jesus for 14 years, or you're here today and you're like, I don't even know what this is all about. Let these two truths be the alternating sun and frost that break your heart wide open. The gospel is the ultimate sun and frost that can break you open, not just to pain, but break you open to all that God made you to be.
And what I'm talking about is not getting some fresh fuel in a dirty engine so it doesn't blow smoke. I'm talking about a whole new machine. All right? It's what the writer of Hebrews describes as coming to God in the full assurance of faith. Not trusting in yourself, but trusting in what he has done. The blood of Jesus sprinkling your heart clean from an evil conscience. It's the wonder of being God's son or daughter. Not because you became spiritual, but because Jesus Christ was the word who became flesh. And dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of what? Grace and truth. It's the title of this sermon. But more relevant to you. That is the mechanics of God's discipline. It's Jesus Christ at work in your life. Full of grace. Full of truth. Perfectly balanced. Thanks be to God. And so... Hear the good news. You didn't come to church today to hear bad news about how God wants to beat you up. You came to hear good news. God doesn't just want payback or forgiveness. He wants growth and flourishing. And that might look like weakness. But in God's economy, weakness is strength and growth and flourishing. Okay? So sons and daughters, you are loved so much by God that he will never stop breaking you open like the most resilient highway until you become the finest bourbon, until you're the most beautifully toned muscle. He won't stop because that's how much he loves you. Whichever analogy there appeals to you most based on which one you like most, take it home, okay? But three quick encouragements that I want to give you about God's discipline so that this can actually not beat you up, but set you free. Remember, when it comes to God's discipline, remember its purpose, endure its pain, enjoy its fruit. First, remember its purpose. The Lord disciplines those he loves. The Lord disciplines those he the Lord disciplines those he You're going to have to say it to yourself over and over in order to beat it into your heart. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Because God called you to himself, there is great purpose in every detail of your life. Even in, and perhaps especially in, the confusing, unstable ups and downs of life. This is why I say to my family group, hey, we're going to do evidences of grace. We're going to share where we see God's grace at work in our lives. This is not just where something good happened to you this week. It could be that, but it could also be something really terrible. Because God's grace is flowing in the good and in the terrible and in everything in between. There's purpose in all of it. And if you can't remember the loving purpose in these things, then you won't be able to receive the second encouragement. Endure its pain. Another way of saying it, stay in the gym, right? It takes discipline to stay in the gym, to to, to go at it so hard that it breaks your muscles down so they can build back up. The reason why Romans 8.28 often doesn't keep us in the gym is because we're trying to apply it outwardly. Things like this. 
God's purpose for me getting COVID at that time and missing my trip was so that I wouldn't be in a car accident, maybe. Okay, maybe. How are you really going to know? Maybe there's a million more reasons why you got COVID at that particular time and missed your trip. Who will know? Or something like this. God's purpose for me having to come back overseas was so that I could share the gospel with my next door neighbor. Maybe. Great. Awesome. Don't really know. Or like this. God's purpose for my loved one passing away when he did was so that I would get closer to my family. Okay. Great. Sure. Maybe. Nothing wrong with that. But you'll never fully know. But here's what you can be certain of if you read the verse after Romans 8, 28. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Like here's how you endure the temporary pain of God's discipline and stay in the gym. You apply the purpose of it, not outwardly to circumstances, but inwardly. What's going on in here? I don't know all the situational reasons why I got COVID or I had to come back from overseas or I lost a loved one, but I do know this. God is using it to conform me to the image of his son. And that's enough for me. Third, if you remember its purpose and endure its pain, then you can enjoy its fruits. I said earlier that you don't have to like God's discipline. And that's why God fashioned our soul with an exhaust pipe. Did you know that? God gave you and your soul an exhaust pipe. And I'm not talking about flatulence, okay? I'm talking about the spiritual flatulence called lament. God gives you the gift of lament because life hurts. And even God's discipline hurts. And he invites us to cry out to him in our pain, in the midst of his discipline. But you know what you can like? The peaceful fruit of righteousness that God's discipline yields. The next verse, Romans 8.30, puts it this way. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's what I mean by enjoy. Glory in the fruit. Glory in it. So think about this. If... After that first gymnastics practice, I decided to go back, stay in the gym, and to continue to put myself under the brutal training of gymnastics to the point that I eventually made the Olympic team and I won a gold medal. Do you think that I would, while standing on that platform with that gold medal, be like, eh, whatever? <laughs> no, man, I would glory in that journey and its accomplishment, right? That's good and right to, to glory in that. And when God's perfect balance of truth and grace causes you, his child, to grow up and flourish, glory. Glory be to God. Enjoy it. Jesus said, man, I come, I tell you all these things so that your joy may be full. I was like, okay, what does that mean? I think it's something to do with this. When you see Christ growing up in you, you're conforming to his image, you're not who you used to be, don't make light of that. Glory in it so your joy can be full. Well, church, we don't have a gymnasium here at our church, 
This used to be a gym, a basketball court, I suppose. But the gym that we come to every week keeps us going. It's this table right here. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took a cup of wine. And after blessing it, he said, this marks the new covenant in the shedding of something real special. Something gladly given. Something that will cost me more than God's discipline. Something that will cost me God's wrath. But I give it for you. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. Until he returns, church, and he is coming soon. We're announcing that Jesus Christ is full of grace and truth. Thanks be to God. Our tradition here is to come forward to break off a piece of bread and to dip it into the juice. There'll be gluten-free available over on this side. If you're a baptized believer, whether or not you're a member of this church, we invite you to come to the table to be encouraged. Maybe the Spirit's convicted your heart. Come, repenting of sin. Come broken. You'll be blessed. You'll be built up. Be made stronger as you go away from here. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, would you acknowledge that? Like, I know you're in church, and it's like a church. Everybody's a believer in Jesus, right? We don't want to be walking around. But hey, would you acknowledge that? That your heart is so hard that nothing could break it except the body and blood of Jesus? And yet, God loves you so much that he gave the very thing that you need to break your heart and change it, give you a new one forever and ever. Hey, come to know Christ instead of coming to this table. There are going to be pastors in the back to pray with anyone who has any need. And also, I invited Amy Mahalov to come back so that a woman's in the back to pray with those of you who are women who may be needing to share something sensitive that you feel like a, a woman should pray with you about. Okay, So come back. Let's, let's do battle together in the back. Let's, let's get in the gym of, of going to God's throne room of grace through prayer together let's pray father we bow before you what do we say after reading <laughs> these words and and hearing the gospel come out so clearly in them we I, thanks thanks be to god thank you lord though we read genesis 42 and say what is going on here joseph just seems unstable but lord you're doing something and Lord, we look at our lives and say, man, what is going on here? It just seems unstable. And yet, God, you're doing something. You love us so much that you won't just let us go. 14 years lingering, drifting away, nothing happened in our lives. No, you're coming after us because you want all of us. When you died, you didn't die just to capture us to believe the right thing and do the right thing. You, you bought our story and our baggage and our sins and our our wounds, so you could heal them all and make us like Jesus, under your glory, to make our joy full, that we might bless the nations. And so, Lord, in this moment, may it be an expression of your glorious work in us, of truth and grace, as we come forward broken and yet built up stronger, remembering what you've done for us and proclaiming it until the day you come. In Jesus' name, amen.